From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. When it starts heating up around this time of year, you can count on two things, postseason play ramping up across the board and graduation. On this week's show, those are both hot topics, as we'll begin with a Gator Roundtable covering big scheduling news for football, notable student-athletes who donned their cap and gown last week, softball looking for a late surge, a critical stretch for baseball, men's tennis out for revenge in the Sweet 16, lacrosse hoping to make some noise in the NCAA tournament, and the future of spring pro football in the PAT with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, tennis star McLean Kessler talks about his role in the rise of the men's program and their opportunity to get even this weekend in the NCAA tournament. But first, it was a quiet week in football news until it wasn't. After being teased in recent months by Scott Strickland, the Gators made a splash with some future scheduling news that suggests there is more to come soon. So to open our roundtable, Scott broke down the announcement and what it means for the future of Florida football. Florida will play a home-and-home with Colorado, and uh, these programs have never met. Uh, It's something different for the fans, uh, something different for the Gators. Uh, Obviously, it's still ways away, Adam. Uh, The series isn't going to take place until... 2028 and 29. Wow. First year in 2028 is going to be here in Gainesville, and then they'll go out to Boulder in 2029. So, funniest thing I saw on Twitter today was as of right now, the kids who are going to play in this game, they're still in elementary and, and middle school. So, <laughs> it's going to be a while before the game. But I do like the strategy. I mean, Florida fans have let Scott Strickland know about And I think it's also just a, a national trend that's important. I mean, it's harder and harder to sell out and to really attract large crowds at, at games that are not, you know, that fans don't view it as favorable. I mean, uh, whether it's a, against an FCS opponent or another FBS program that's kind of a lightweight, uh, those cupcake games, they, they don't sell. People automatically just don't show up because the Gators or Florida State or, you know, Alabama's playing at home. That's the time we live in, you know. We're all connected to this almost year-round now through technology, TV. There's so many options. So, you know, they but you, you play a program like Colorado, uh, that's something new. And then also it's a nice opportunity for Florida fans to go on the road. Uh, you know, I've been to Boulder. I actually covered, believe it or not, Florida State played out there when I covered Florida State in the mid-2000s. Huh. Then they had a neutral site game in Jacksonville against the Colorado. So, a little unique background there, but I like it. I mean, I, I love these kind of games, and I hope there's more of them, and I get the feeling that uh, there is going to be more of them, and I think that's just the way college football and you know, 2019, 2020, and beyond is going to be. You're going to have less and less cupcake games. You're going to have some neutral site games, like obviously Miami to kick off next season, but then you're going to have some of these home-and-home home series. And it is rare. I mean, this is going to be first time the Gators have played a non-conference game, a road non-conference game since, what, 1991 at Syracuse. Yeah. That has that has been a while. Well, the other thing, too, and you mentioned kind of reacting to the trend 
for the longest time, Florida's been kind of in a, a tough position in scheduling games like this because you've got Georgia and Jacksonville, so you automatically lose a home game every year. And then you have Florida State as a non-conference geographic rival, which until recently was a top 10 type opponent. So your schedule strength was really, really difficult. There was no reason to beef it up beyond that. But again, as you noted, times are sort of changing and there's more of an expectation of you got to give us something we haven't seen before, something new, something fresh. And that's what's inspiring a lot of these to happen. And so, you know, Florida has to react to that trend as well. Yeah, I mean, it's always big for especially a true college town like Gainesville. It's big for a local economy to have a home game. So there was a, you know, there was a lot of thoughts that went into whether or not to go out to play Michigan and Dallas uh, mm-hmm. to kick off the 17th season. It worked out really great, except on the field. But the great crowd there, great environment. But you know, the UAA has always been cognizant of you know local businesses, and so you know you don't want to give too many home games away. But at the same time, if you play a team that's not going to draw a lot. How much is it really helping the local businesses because people aren't coming as much? And if they are, they maybe are just coming for the day and then disappear. But you you have a marquee opponent. It seems like people maybe come in the night before making more of a uh, weekend out of it. So I I just think also with the advent of the college football playoff, and I think by the time that this Florida-Colorado series actually does come to fruition, it will not surprise me at all if the college football playoff has been expanded from four teams to maybe eight or more. So a tough game like, you know, a non-conference road game early in the season, it's not as scary as maybe it once was because you you lose one of those games 10, 15 years ago, it could automatically knock you out of the national championship hunt early in the season. Nowadays, it's you don't have that same risk because you have time to bounce back and get into the playoff and if you're playing well anything can happen so i think it's good it's good for the fans the schedule to me in the sec even the league it's gotten kind of still we've talked about this on the the show before like auburn's coming to the swamp this season for the first time in 12 years and to me when when that happens you got to really think about maybe tweaking some things with the schedule they're obviously doing it here in the non-conference variety with this colorado home and home So that is a a long way in the future, and who knows what some of the recent graduates will be doing by the time that happens. Hopefully they'll still be following the Gators closely, but who are some of the most notable Gators and former Gators that had a chance to walk the stage this week? Yeah, obviously the most notable one, Adam, would be Canyon Berry. He finished uh, playing basketball here, obviously, two years ago. He arrived here three summers ago as a grad transfer by way of College of Charleston. Obviously, uh, he brought with him uh, a very famous basketball name, and uh, he also brought with him quite a, a resume relative to academics. Um, he was a great student at, at College of Charleston. He was a great student, valedictorian of his high school, and he came here as a grad transfer and came to study nuclear engineering. And uh, here's the deal: some of these grad tra- the grad transfer uh, route is here, and it's it, and, and it's a good thing in terms of it's. You know, people talk about student athletes and and how college athletics doesn't necessarily give student athletes um, a track to maybe as far as freedom goes or what have you. Well, the grad transfer rule lets them move around a little bit. You get your degree, say you've sat out at a developmental year or you've got a medical redshirt year, which was Kane and Barry's case. 
jumped ship. He finished his here at Florida. And a lot of people don't finish their master's degrees, but Canyon Barry, in between playing some professionally overseas, uh, stint in the G League in Iowa. He did some stuff on his laptop uh, in between uh, games and practices. And he walked with a master's degree in nuclear engineering, as I wrote in my story that was on FloridaGators.com this week. He played her one year. He was sixth man of the year in the SEC. He averaged almost 12 points a game. He made uh, two just incredible plays in the, that obviously was overshadowed by Chris Chios' shot against Wisconsin. Both of those plays he made in overtime, including that chase down block shot that you know hardcore Gators are never going to forget. But you know he did a lot of stuff online. He came back here, went to went to some classes while he was training in between uh, uh, his uh, jumping around professional stints wherever those may be. So good for him. Uh, also good for someone you obviously uh, got to see play a lot, Adam Haley Lorenzen. Mm-hmm. Uh, great young lady, uh, outstanding player here, score, rebounder. It's just an ambassador of the game. She ended up being on the on the on the student athlete committee for the Southeastern Conference. She graduated in three years here, a few years back in tourism, events, and recreation management. And in the last two years, she got two master's degrees. Wow. One in event management, and she just walked with a second one in sports management. So uh those are two really good success stories, and those kind of things obviously are overshadowed by what stuff goes on on the field. But might as well give shout-outs to those uh, two student athletes in this week, in the last week, with all the graduating uh, comings and goings and goings-on that have gone around here. And you know, while we're on this topic, Adam, i got to want to toss in there because yeah, you got a good one. the uh, audience is going to remember Mike McNilly mm-hmm. from that former against Georgia in 2014 on that fake field goal, took it around the end and scored a huge momentum swing in that win over the Bulldogs. And, uh, you know, Mike Manilli, remember the story then? He was uh, working at Publix as a right. bag boy, and he planned to finish undergrad and then go into med school. Well, guess what? He's done with med school. He uh, he graduates on May 18th. I, wow. I saw him earlier this week, and uh, – He's dropped about 20 pounds from his playing days, and he wasn't that big in the first place. He said he's going down from about 180 to 160, been putting in a lot of hours, about to finish up his degree, and then he's already got a position lined up over in the panhandle at a at a military base. That's where he's going to start off, I guess, his residency. Hmm. And I'll have more on that on the website next week as it gets closer to the date. But I thought as we're talking about these, uh, these student athletes graduating, uh, that's one that I came across that uh, I know people out there remember very well. Moving things back onto the field, uh, it, it's an important week for softball. And usually the SEC tournament is not that big of a deal for them and their their seeding is already pretty much set. But this is a, a critical week for them in College Station is right now after a disappointing senior weekend, they're sitting at number 10 in the RPI. And if you're not in that top eight, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to be hosting a Super Regional. And Florida's had a top eight seed every single year since 2008. So this is a a pretty significant streak on the line and and one that has a lot to do with whether or not you got an easier road to Oklahoma City. Yeah, and I I don't know what the chances are of them uh, playing a Super Region here. And, and, you know, just truth be told, they'll have to get out of a region. And to do that, they're going to have to hit the ball better. It's been an issue all year. Only two hitters hitting over 300. Um, yeah, last week going into their uh, senior week, uh, Mississippi State came in, and you know, Florida's had had its way with Mississippi State basically since since they started playing softball in these parts. <laughs> and to lose two out of three at home on senior weekend, uh, Kelly Barnhill got knocked around pretty good. Um, Elizabeth Hightower came up with a win, but they you know to lose two out of three at Mississippi State and and going to uh, the tournament this week as um, as a number six seed, it's a little different. 
different way to, to go about it. And, may, you know, you and I have talked about this this time of year, Adam. Tim Walton's never put premium emphasis on the SEC tournament. Sure. And I don't know how many they have to win. I, I, I don't even know if they were to win the tournament, if that's going to change their situation as far as um, hosting a super, super regional. So uh, that's the situation that they're in right now. That's what happens when you finish 12 and 12 in league play. John Gruden used to say, we're going to get what we deserve, okay? There's your <laughs> weekly John Gruden impression. It's got to it's be at least bi-weekly, or, or I, don't, I don't think we can uh, publish it as Gator Tales. But, uh, uh, yeah, and, and Tim Walt will tell you the same thing. But come postseason, you know, obviously that everybody starts from scratch. But, you know, bottom line is they have to hit the ball a lot better. They're last in the league in hitting. I believe they're second to the last in run scored. I think uh, I crunched some numbers heading into the, the season-ending series against Mississippi State. They're hitting 273 as a team, but 221 in SEC play. So obviously you're doing that against your, your the better competition. And, uh, you know, that's going to be when you're hitting at 221, then the other team better not be hitting uh, and better not be scoring runs. And um, that comes to be uh, something of a problem when, you know, say Kelly Barnhill gives up a three home, a three run homer, which is she's apt to do sometimes. So now, you know, that puts them in a position where they had to score three or four runs. And that's uh, just not something that they're doing these days. So I don't know if it's something that can be fixed, but uh, they got one of the best coaches in the country. They can bear down some. Uh, uh, Amanda Lorenz, here's some good news. Um, the All-Southeastern Conference team was announced. Amanda Lorenz is first player in, in program history to uh, be named first-team All-SEC all four years. So congratulations to her. And by the time this season is over, she's probably going to be the uh, – First player in school history to uh, hit 400 for a career, which would be quite an achievement. But having said that, you know, flat out asked her about that last week, and that's not something that's on her radar. She's uh, interested in making the season and this time with her teammates last as long as it can. So into postseason they go and got to score some runs. When if we uh, talk about the team on the larger diamond as well, it's some of the same issues, Scott, with baseball as they continue trying to build that resume uh, toward the postseason. Yeah, they didn't uh, have much success at that up in Georgia last weekend, Adam. Uh, they go up and the Bulldogs sweep them uh, Friday night. They lose, and Saturday they get rained out, and then they have to play a doubleheader on Sunday and lose both of those. And now you're looking at 9-15 and 15 in the SEC, Adam, and six games left. And at this point, you know, you're thinking, you know, maybe to get into the tournament they're going to have to win four or five of those conference games against Tennessee at home and then on the road at Missouri and maybe go straight from Missouri to the SEC tournament in Hoover and make some noise there. Uh, it looks like right now with the way they're playing, it's probably a long shot. Well, it's just a team that, you know, they've been hitting pretty well all season, but the pitching has been the problem. And then they go up to Georgia and they also have trouble scoring runs. And that's obviously a formula that's not going to work in their favor. It's just a young pitching staff. Uh, you know, I sound like a broken record here. You, you, you got to work with what you have. And the hope throughout the season from Kevin O'Sullivan and his staff is that some of the young pitchers get better as the year going on and, and cut down their walks. And uh, it just hasn't happened. Walks, leadoff walks, going too deep in counts. It's really cost them. I mean, they're throwing a lot more pitches than they normally do. Uh, O'Sullivan's having to go to his bullpen at inopportune times, using more pitchers than he likes. And you do that consistently throughout the course of a season. 
that's going to start taking its toll late in the year. And that's what's kind of happening right now with the Gators. You know, maybe they get hot. Maybe some young guys figure it out late. Maybe they rake a run in the SEC tournament. Uh, but right now, that's kind of where they are. And, uh, you know, it's certainly unusual to be talking about this storyline this time of year around Gators baseball. But four straight trips to Omaha, that streak looks like it's over. Uh, barring a major surprise, it's been a great run. But, you know, we saw this back in 2013 and 14, a couple of off years after three straight trips to Omaha. And uh, they righted the ship and have really had the best four-year stretch in the program history until this year. And you can bet Kevin O'Sullivan will uh, – that's going to be his aim again. And this is a team that has a lot of talent. I mean, they're not hurting for some talent at key positions. It's just they're young and they're taking their lumps this year. I think you'll see a lot better team next year. But, again, it's one of those years, as they say. You know, it's amazing, too, as we talk about this, you know, we're so used to talking about both baseball and softball, not just being in the NCAA tournament. That's almost a foregone conclusion. But the idea that there's some sort of expectation they're going to be at the World Series and the fact that both of them have a lot of question marks, obviously more for baseball and softball, I think says a lot about the level that they've come to play at consistently and also gives you a little perspective as to how difficult that is to maintain year after year the way that they have. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I think Gator fans, uh, we've all grown custom to this. Uh, I kind of planned my June <laughs> the last <laughs> year. I know that I'm going to be likely spending uh, two weeks in Omaha. I mean, for the last four years, I've done that. So this is the first time that, what, since 2014, I haven't, I'm not booking uh, my calendar uh, in the month of June for that. So it does speak a lot to what Tim Walton and Kevin O'Sullivan have done. Again, the season's not over. They're still trying to do what they've always done. There's, I mean, they're not giving up, obviously, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen, at least more so for baseball maybe than softball. Um, softball is definitely going to be in the postseason. Baseball is still up, up in the air. But that's the nature of the beast. Uh, you've got to eventually – you have a bad injury. You have uh, an inconsistent group of freshmen. Uh, you have a, a someone maybe transferred you know or get hurt that you you didn't expect that's what can happen and uh, all programs eventually run into it uh, it's just that it's been this is the year that both have kind of run into that so there is some good news though i want to talk about some sports that do have it going lacrosse another tournament championship as they go into the NCAAs. not high high expectations relative to years past they're not one of the top seeds but a team that does have high expectations and performed that way this past weekend was men's tennis, which I know was it was significant because they did not play that well at home in the SEC tournament. They were at home again, and this time, when everything was on the line, they performed at the level that everyone thought they would. Yeah, they did. They put back-to-back shutout wins together over Florida Gulf Coast, and then obviously against Florida State to advance it around the 16, and it was a big bounce back because you got to remember, Adam, the last time they were here in the SEC tournament, they hosted, and a lot of people thought the Gators were going to win that. They get upset by Tennessee, uh, have a two weeks off, and then they come back and look really good in the opening uh, two rounds of the NCAA tournament. And it's almost like someone in Hollywood's written the script here, Adam, because guess who's come to town uh, for a spot on the Elite Eight? Tennessee. Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, so Tennessee's back. So needless to say, the Gators are very motivated for this rematch. Uh, you know, I was out there last weekend in the match against Florida State and they took a du- the doubles point in a really grueling fashion. They had to go to a tiebreaker 
uh, with Sam Rafis and Alfredo Perez winning. And then that just seemed to carry over to singles play. And Alfredo Perez, the senior, he wrapped it up in number four singles. And they were immediately right after, you know, you know, Tennessee was on their mind and they got past the first two rounds and they feel pretty good about themselves, like they're back on track and they got them at home again. So they win that year looking at a spot going down to Orlando. Uh, for the final eight, and that's their goal. And it's a program that, you know, they've won, let's see, uh, 15 or 17 out of their last 18 matches. So strike that Tennessee loss away. And I mean, they've been amazing really the last two and a half months. And now they have a chance to kind of right that wrong. So I don't think they're going to, Brian Shelton will have to do too much motivation, uh, to get the guys ready to play this weekend. It's a cool story, too, because it's usually the women's tennis team we're talking about competing for national championships. Roland Thornquist has year after year had them at that level. This year was sort of their down year, as we've talked about with baseball and some others. But on the flip side, men's tennis, you know, playing at a higher level than we've seen them maybe during this entire run for the women's side. So it is nice to see that while some programs aren't quite at the level you expect, there's others that are overperforming to kind of compensate on that. Yeah, and the men's tennis team last year um, made it to the round of 16. I think they beat Ole Miss. I think it was in Chapel Hill last year to uh, get to the Elite Eight. So they were one match away from playing in the Final Four, but lost to a fifth-ranked Texas A&M. So they're on a trajectory. Um, it, it may have taken a little longer than Brian Shelton may have liked. And Scott and I were with Brian Shelton the day he got hired and really, really liked that guy from the get-go. The I mean, he's really composed. Um, he has a plan. He just goes about his his business in just a very kind of stately manner. And I think he's got the team that he likes here. And I don't know if this will be his best team to date. I don't know if this is a team that, that will, you know, maybe punch that so-called glass ceiling and maybe get him to a Final Four or maybe play for a national championship. But it's a confident team. And um, they'll be at home this week against Tennessee. And obviously that's a uh, – like Scott mentioned, that's that's one they'll be highly motivated for, given what happened here a couple of weeks ago in the SEC tournament. Yeah, yeah and you know, Adam, going to lacrosse, uh, a team that has a lot to play for as they go up to Chapel Hill this weekend. They face John Hopkins to open the NCAA tournament. They get past that. They uh, will face the uh, North Carolina, perhaps. Uh, this is a, a Florida team that they've won 10 in a row. I mean, if you look at their schedule, Amanda Leary put a lot of ranked teams on the schedule this year. They lost a lot of those matches. Uh, but once they got past that group, and I mean, they were all close matches. If you go back, a lot of one, two, three goal uh, losses uh, that just didn't go their way with a team that, you know, was still trying to find itself. And they seem to have found themselves because, like I said, they've won 10 in a row, go up to Cincinnati last weekend and win the inaugural American Athletic Conference, beat a Cincinnati team. In the championship, beat Vanderbilt in the semifinals. And uh, I think, you know, I was over there this week and, uh, you know, Coach O'Leary and a couple of her players, they really like the way the team's playing, like the way the team's come together after those early season struggles. And you can just tell they're a confident group. So it's going to be a tough challenge uh, to go up to Chapel Hill and win two and advance. But uh, it's not out of the question with the way they're playing of late. So we'll see what happens for both tennis and lacrosse, and we'll talk more about that next week. But right now, I do want to move on to our PAT, and and I'm inspired this week by some news I saw a few days ago about the XFL securing a pretty significant TV package. They're going to be on Fox, they're going to be on ESPN. I think there's some ABC involved in that as well. Of course, this is coming on the heels of the 
uh, very sudden demise of the latest attempt at a spring football league uh, or minor league football, whatever you want to call it, that just failed miserably and now is facing lawsuits, declared bankruptcy. Uh, very, very ugly end for the league that Steve Spurrier is one of the faces of. So I'm curious what you guys think about this. I mean, you've you've lived through more of this than I have. You were around during the USFL days. We were all around during the initial XFL. Uh, none of these things have worked. So I'm curious what you think about this latest attempt, which has untold money behind it and a great TV partnership. Does that change in your mind the appetite or lack thereof for a second football league? We, we need less football, not more football. These leagues that keep popping up. You, you said that I was around for the USFL. That's right, I was. I, I, I was working at the Tampa Tribune at the time and covered the Tampa Bay Bandits who were coached by Steve Spurrier and that league. But I, I'm old enough to remember the World Football League in the 70s which tried to gut the NFL also. And uh, you may not even notice, Adam, the Miami Dolphins won the Super Bowl and three of their best players were Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and Paul Warfield. And the WFL came in and swooped them. I think the Memphis Showboats or whatever the hell, I, I don't even know what the team was. I think they signed those three great Miami Dolphin players away and, and gutted a, a team that won two Super Bowls. I did not yeah. know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Some really good players from the NFL went to play for the WFL, which ended up folding uh, late in the season. Like you said, World Football League, USFL, World League of American Football was the one, uh, was the was NFL Europe. That's right. Kerwin, you know, Kerwin Bell was over. That's where Kurt Warner got his start. Then the XFL which we gave us he hate me and now the alliance of american football now we got another xfl no stop we don't need any more of this you can't make us watch it but why why will you not watch it i think that's the core of of this question once the football once the real football season is over i'll just wait for the next one we don't need year-round football the the super bowl ends and we get year-round football anyway in terms of non-football related uh, off the field news whether mm-hmm. it's the and the NFL plans it that way they, they there's a reason free agency starts or there's the combine and the run up to the draft and free agency and all that's all that stuff's plotted out sure I don't, I, I don't need any more football now that, that's just me uh, it does provide opportunities for guys you know that that maybe are between leagues or what have you or maybe gives guys a chance to show their wares on a, a alternative uh, venue. But what that opportunity, what did that do for the Alliance of American football guys that, that played and ended up not getting paid and pretty much were sold a bill of goods mm-hmm. and some, and some pretty high profile named coaches that didn't get it. That's, that's just my take on it. I think, you know, the, the NFL season is long enough. Uh, it's high profile enough. I mean, we get Thursday games, we get Saturday games. We get, seemingly we get Sunday and Monday games and, um, and we get a lot of college football and that's, that's a lot there. I don't, I don't know why I have to watch football in April or May. So knowing that you're on the same page as Chris, do you think there's a way that it can work? Because the AFL said, well, if we just had cooperation from the NFL players association, this could have worked. Do you think there is a path to make this work? Or is this just something that will not fly no matter how they try and package it? I think there's one way that this could work and the way it could work is the if the NFL wants it to work and the NFL owners get together and say, you know what, we think it's good for our business to have football all year round. And what we're going to do is we're going to give a lot of our players, like their practice players and maybe even some of their draft picks to this new league to get it off the ground and give it some name recognition 
uh, we're going to give them, you know, obviously the TV deals are in place. But that, to me, that's the only way it's ever going to work. The NFL is so big and college football is so big that by the time those two seasons end, I think a lot of people are, you know, they're footballed out at that point. Now, you know, I realize that football is America's game now. It's, it's the king. Uh, you know, it is the most popular sport we have. But I, I think in some ways, you know, you, you do it all year round. That could hurt. And again, like I said, the only way I really think any of these leagues are ever going to work is the NFL wants them to work because that's where the money is. And the reason that these things continually fell over and over is ultimately because of money. Hey, you know, Adam, I guess I'm old-fashioned. I actually still like baseball some. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, like, I like to watch the hockey playoffs a little bit here and there. I like the NBA playoffs. Um, all that stuff's enough for me. You know, I like the Rolling Stones, but if they were on tour 12 months a year, I'd probably get tired of them after a little while. Well, and, and that's a good point. I think that the, the best way to close this is to say that multiple people that have studied the success and popularity of football believe one of the biggest reasons for that is scarcity, because you only get the product for four to five months out of the year, and the rest of the year, you're building anticipation for it, and for the most part, you only get it once a week. So in terms of supply and demand, they keep demand high by keeping the supply low and making it a scarce resource that you have to invest in and look forward to as opposed to something that's just there all the time, like you just mentioned about the Rolling Stones. So I think ultimately the answer to the question is there's no way to make spring football work because that goes against the reason for the popularity of the game to begin with. Putting it in that contest, that certainly makes sense. And I'll just say when I ever see the NFL's financial records or I hear about how much these teams are worth or these owners are worth, whatever they're doing is obviously working. (laughs) So, uh, again, unless they want a spring football league to work, uh, I just don't see it ever happening. One thing I do see happening is Chris and Scott keeping the content rolling over on FloridaGators.com. And, of course, you can follow them on Twitter at GatorScott at GatorsChris as they track Gators heading toward the postseason, both those in the postseason and those trying to make their way to it. So keep track of them. And, guys, thank you so much as always. Thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. While the women's tennis program owns the vast majority of the trophies, the men's team has been on the rise in recent years, guided by the sturdy hand of Brian Shelton. But you also need good grips on the rackets themselves, and for the last four years, McLean Kessler has led that effort on the court. The Calhoun Georgia native has lost just one singles match at home in his career, and he's hoping it stays that way as the team prepares for the Sweet 16 this weekend in Gainesville. We spoke to the lifelong Gator about his time in Gainesville and reaching the end of the road, but began by finding out what it means to wrap up his final year with the program's first SEC title since 2005. Um, I mean, it was just one of our goals, you know, set out for the season. I mean, we play in the toughest conference is the SEC, and to be able to win it shows that we're probably the toughest team in the country, and it just is, you know, unbelievable it's one of the harder things to do and not many people get to get it done so it's just such a great feeling for all of us so i know you come from a uh, long line of tennis players it's huge in your family so at what age was it introduced to you probably when i was seven years old i played my first tennis tournament and yeah i mean it's just something i've always always loved and always had a passion for so i know your sister plays as well and she's on the women's team how early on were you guys playing each other, and how competitive was that? Um, I was probably about 
12, 13. I don't even know if she wanted to play <laughs> tennis as much. I just kind of was like, hey, let's go out. You know, I, want, I wanted someone to hit with, you know, and tried to teach her a lot. And she ended up really loving it. And we would go to tournaments and stuff and put little wagers on who would do better in the tournament in each age group, like, who, you know, whoever does better. The other has to do running or other has to do certain things. And I, I was usually the one doing the running. This <laughs> well she did you know i i grew up playing tennis as well and i remember early on my dad especially would beat me all the time and then came that pivot point where i started beating him and suddenly he didn't want to play as much anymore so i'm curious when that happened for you given how prolific your parents were at tennis when did you flip it in in your direction yeah he's a pretty good player um it's probably when i was uh 15 years old i beat him for the first time it was pretty funny. I mean, yeah, it was it was a battle. I think I called I called a, a couple close calls from he, what I remember. He he wasn't happy about him. Uh, yeah, he he was quite he was questioning me a little bit. When did you beat your mom for the first time? That came a little sooner. Uh, <laughs> probably when I was eleven or twelve. I could make one more ball. That's not bad. No, that's yeah, that's, that's respectable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've, I've read that you were a big Gator fan growing up, despite living in Georgia. So I'm curious, what was that connection and why was that already in place before you even came to Florida? Um, my granddad played football for Florida. So oh, wow. it was my whole family was huge, huge Gator fans. And I mean, even my mom, she'll cheer for Florida over UCF, even though she went to college at UCF. She's the biggest Gator fan I've, I've ever seen. My mom's side of the family, everyone is from Florida. And just, it was, I don't know, just kind of how we were raised. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Atlanta as a Gator fan and faced a lot of uh, a lot of persecution for that. So I'm curious, uh, was that something you got a lot of time? You get grief from people being a Gator fan in, in Georgia? Oh, yeah. A lot of people didn't even know my name. They just know me as Gator. <laughs> they just call me the, the Gator. There's the Gator. There's that Gator. You know, especially growing up in Calhoun, there's so many Georgia fans you sure. wouldn't believe. I mean, it's like I mean, it's like Athens, Georgia. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same. Like, it would be so nice to go to school when Florida would win a, a big sporting event. That way, I could talk a little more, That's a right. little more about it. Yeah. That's right. So, I, I guess you always wanted to go to Florida, and did it matter even what the state of the program was, or did you want to be a Gator first and foremost, and then the, the tennis part came with it? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I wanted to be a, a Gator. I mean, once I started playing tennis, I always kind of dreamed of playing in the national championship for Florida and winning, but that's something that we have a really good chance to do this year and be awesome for sure. So when Coach Shelton came to you, I'm, I'm sure it was a, a pretty easy sales pitch since you were already in on it, but what were some of the things he talked to you about, about what you could accomplish if you came to Florida and played for him? Uh, Coach Shelton, yeah, when he, uh, he actually is from Atlanta and he played at Georgia Tech and was the women's coach there. So I knew of him. I didn't really know him, but I knew of him. And once he got the job at at Florida, I was as excited as I could be because, I mean, I had that connection because he was from Georgia. And his his pitch to me was just like, you know, playing professional and how he could help me get to the next level and how much of a, a better person and tennis player I could become. And that's something that he's really, really done. And he's done, I think, I've seen it with everyone that he's coached. He's, you know, he's just become a awesome person and a way better tennis player. And that's what he's going to do until he stops coaching. Thinking back to when you started out on campus, what do you remember about the biggest adjustments you had to make, both in terms of the tennis you were playing and also as a student and being away from home for the first time? Oh, for me, it was being organized. Um, 
came in and I was a little, little messy, a little, uh, little unorganized uh, about the outfits that we had to wear and the, the scheduling of how to do school on top of getting better at tennis. And that's something that the coaches really helped me a lot with my academic advisors and tutors were awesome. And I've become really, really pretty good on being on time and all that stuff now. I always like to find out, especially from seniors, who were the guys when you came in that had the biggest impact on you, especially upperclassmen? So for you, who were those names you remember that, that had a big impact on you from day one? The biggest ones were Elliot Orkin, Diego Hidalgo, uh, Josh Wardell, and Max Lippman. When I came in, these four guys just, you know, I felt like they were my brothers, my older brothers, and they anything, anytime I needed something, anytime I needed help with anything, if I wanted to just go out, you know, play or help with school, or they were always there, and they've really, they really showed me how what the standard was for the University of Florida. On the flip side of that, thinking about the the individuals you've had the biggest impact on, are there any in particular that you think you you've really left your mark on in, in a certain way? Yeah, I mean, I think I've really showed uh, Andy and Duarte. Uh, I feel like they've, you know, caught on to some of the things, the uh, energy part of it every single day in practice that I've tried to bring. And, you know, also, like, I've tried to show them to be humble and respectful to your opponents, and that's something they're taking really into heart, and those are two of the guys that it, I see from last year to this year have made an unreal improvement of how much they've improved in every aspect of their life. You talked about energy there. You know, college tennis is unique in the sense that you're taking what's mostly an individual sport and you're making it a team sport. So I know you're one of the most enthusiastic when it comes to motivating the rest of the team, especially during competitions. But how do you do that effectively in this type of competition? Um, so... Like in this type of competition, it's it's by yourself. But when you see someone that has energy, I feel like it's infectious, especially like when there's six courts and you can see one side of the court is just the energy never goes down. So like if someone is starting to get like a little bit down on themselves or something, they can look over to their teammates and they can be like, it's all right. Like my, my guy's over there, you know, doing well. He's pumped up. He's excited. I'm, I might as well be excited and then all six guys start to feed off of each other, and that's when it makes a team of champions, right? I mean, I think I think that's the best way to put it. It can be so chaotic following a match, too, because you have all these courts going simultaneously, and it, there's, you know, there's, there's ebbs, there's flows, there's ups, there's downs. How much, when you're in singles competition, are you aware of what's happening on the other courts? I mean, do you know what the score is? Do you glance up at the board, or are you just kind of feeling the, the energy of what's happening? Um, I can kind of feel the like the energy. Uh, I don't really. Sometimes I don't really know the scores. I don't like to look at them too much because mm-hmm. then it'll make me not be focused on my match. But once I, you know, if I hear Oliver going nuts or Andy or Duarte or any, you know, anyone that's out there, Johannes, you know, if I hear a positive thing, and especially if we're at home, and then you hear the crowd after the big come on. It gives me gives me life. I'm, we're in this. We're gonna we're gonna take this match. For people who don't follow the sport closely, they might not know about the the doubles point and how important that is. Can you just talk about the impact that's had for your team, especially because I know that's been something you've really focused on. Yeah, I mean the the doubles point is uh, 
is huge. It, it's what gets you started into the dual match. It's how you can grab momentum and just run with it. Um, without winning the doubles point, you really your team's got you're in for a huge battle. So only getting three points, you have to get four. You're going to need a big effort every time you don't win the doubles point. And but uh, for us, I mean, if you look at our team, I mean, we have 12 guys that are were unreal, like that can all play. So for us, our top six guys that play, if we get the doubles point, it's you know nearly impossible to beat us because of how how strong we are up and down the line. I know your parents are people you've admired who play tennis, but I'm thinking maybe at an even bigger level than that. What pro players do you most admire and, and why? Um, I, you know, I like these, uh, these grinders, uh, like Rafa Nadal, uh, Roberto Batista Agu, David Ferrer. Like these are the type of guys that, you know, I, I admire the most because they're, they're out there working, working their tail off. I feel like uh, every single match, every single point, they they don't let up a single point, and they're just doing it so consistently, week in, week out for their whole careers, and it's pretty unbelievable to watch. Is there a guy in there that you'd most want to compete against, or is there someone else? If you could face one player in a dream scenario, who would it be? Uh, I mean, it would be Rafa Nadal at the French Open. Mm. If you get to play one of the best players on his favorite surface of all time, I mean, that seems pretty special to me. Looking at your time as a Gator, now as you kind of get to a reflective point, I imagine, what's your your best memory from your time? I would say last year at Ole Miss in the Sweet 16, I think it was me and Johannes left on the court, and I think I was down a break in the third my coach, uh, Tanner Stump, looked at me and said, you know, Johannes went down. He went down with full body cramps. Uh, we need your match. It's up to you. You need to get this done. And I'm down to break in the third. And I come back and I came back and won. And the team just rushed the court. That was pretty pretty special. But then as a team aspect, I mean, it was uh, winning the SEC tournament title my freshman year was special. And this year winning the regular season SEC title was unbelievable. I know because of your uh, your long-term Gator fandom that you probably have some good answers for this too, but in your time, what's your best memory from a Gator sporting event that is not your own? The uh, Tennessee game when uh, Will Greer passed to Callaway. Well, both those games I was at, uh, yeah, Frank's to Cleveland, that was a pretty, pretty fun game. I stayed stayed for the whole game mm. for both of those, but... Um, after we we won those, it was it felt you know the swamp was was ro- rocking and it was something like I've never seen before. And then I guess I guess uh, Chioza the shot that he hit mm-hmm. against Wisconsin, yeah, that was pretty pretty crazy as well. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't at the game, but to watch that on TV live, just to see those moments live and how excited people are after them is uh, pretty special. Outside of tennis which i know takes up the large bulk of your time what are some things you enjoy doing when you do have some free time uh i like i like to play uh different card games playing golf with my friends i've just picked it up and i've been having a lot of fun with it so uh playing with some of the guys on the team and we've been learning and trying to get get better you know i like it a lot what are some of the card games you've been working on uh me and uh, lucas greif are Teaching uh, Tanner Stump and Coach P Scott Perlman how to how to play some euchre. What is euchre? 
you know what hearts yeah hearts and spades kind of like those games but a mixture oh wow i consider myself a card guy and i don't even know maybe i got to get on a a different level then (laughs) yeah yeah you need to you need to learn learn it for sure yeah very talented at it (laughs) i gotta i gotta level up there a couple final things for you obviously there's a lot still on the table for you playing wise at florida but beyond that what are your plans for after school and, and how much of those taking shape? My ultimate dream is to always make it on the pro tour and, you know, playing a tournament against some of the best players in the world in front of a huge crowd. And that's something that I think I, I believe I can achieve and I'll do, do whatever it takes to achieve. And then I'll, I'll coach tennis at some point in my life. Bringing things back to where you are right now, I know that the mindset you guys are currently in, how ironic is it that Tennessee is your next opponent, considering that they knocked you out of the SEC tournament at home? And and what can you take away from that match to help you get a different result this time around? We've been preparing like no other after that match. Once we saw the draw come out and we saw that they, you know, a possible round of 16 match versus them, we were all the most excited ever. Especially for me, I was, I didn't want to end, you know, end my last time playing Tennessee with a loss. But uh, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, my gosh, another opportunity to play these guys. And, you know, we're going to get get after them. We're prepared, the most prepared we've been all season for a match. And we're the most focused. And we know now what we need to do to take them down. And probably my four years, one of the toughest feelings I've had was after we lost that match. And just because of who they were and how they kind of, you know, went about it after winning winning the match. Well, McLean, thank you so much for your time. We wish you a lot of luck, not just in this match, but hopefully climbing all the way up that ladder toward a national championship. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Head to FloridaGators.com for info on all of this week's action and make sure you come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.